Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Jesus is enough. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the digital stream of our Sunday message at Redeeming Hope. I'm Derek Lewandowski, and I'm glad that you've joined us today as we continue our series, God at Home. And the title of today's message is Lining Up the Buttons. I'll explain more about that in a minute. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. You know, we began this series talking about the gospel-centered home. In the next two weeks, we're going to dive deeper into that idea of what it looks like to be a gospel-centered home. And I'm going to do that by sharing a two-part message based on the book, When Sinners Say I Do, by Dave Harvey. It's a book that I've used for premarital counseling, and it's a helpful book to help us think through this idea of God at home and what it looks like when your home is centered on God, when your home is centered around God and is orbiting around God, and, and he's the engine, and he's, <clears throat> he's the focus, he's the goal, he's the authority. Now, to married couples, I pray this challenges and encourages you. To singles, I want to encourage you to let the gospel in this message encourage your heart as well as give you more wisdom and understanding about God's design for the home, regardless of what season you're in, whether you're looking forward to marriage, whether you've been married before and uh, something happened, whether divorce or death, and you're looking maybe in the future again to the possibility of marriage, uh, I want to encourage all of you to just glean from this message today and this text of scripture, God's wisdom. Now, have you ever seen a shirt that doesn't have all the buttons lined up? I'm just a wild guess, but stats probably say that this is more of a guy thing than a girl thing. It's happened to me multiple times. My wife has caught me several times walking out the door uh, to whatever, and sometimes even on Sunday, she'd be like, sweetheart, yeah, your buttons are lined, it's something funny, your colors are off, and the whole thing's off. I was, you know, I was sporting the, the idiot look because I got the first button wrong in the wrong hole and kept going until, voila, the idiot look. I'll never forget one Sunday at church when we were part of a church in New York. The women were away at a retreat, which meant the men were left to care for themselves and get the family to church. And I sat behind a man that wore a V-neck sweater. And I knew it was a V-neck sweater sitting behind him because the V was down the center of his back. Just awesome. So we have to line up the buttons uh, so that the thing looks right, so that the thing makes sense. And, and I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about our theology. I'm talking about our, our vision and our mission uh, as husbands and wives, as, as family. Uh, yes, in the home and, and even in the church. And here's just a, a review of a quote that I quoted earlier in the series from R.C. Sproul. No Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in a technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. What we believe spills from our lips every single day, and you recognize it in this slice of conversation. You know, one spouse says to another, yeah, well, whatever, that's just the way I am. 
It's not my fault that it pushes all the wrong buttons for you. There's, there's some, that statement is rooted in your beliefs. Or you really don't care about what I need, do you? Or what you need, what about what I need? My feelings don't seem to matter at all in this marriage. Why can't you trust me? I'll never forgive you for that. Why won't you change? This marriage will never work unless you change. When we have conversations like this, our theology is being backed out of the garage and it's being taken for a spin around the block. Now let's line up the buttons. And I think the buttons line up for us really well in Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. And if you were here for our Ephesians series over the last uh, year, 15 months, uh, you might remember this text of scripture uh, from the beginning of that series. Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, or the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Glory. Okay, three things here. I think as we line up the buttons. Button number one, the foundation of marriage and family. Button number two, the fountain of marriage and family. And number three, the focus of marriage and family. Let's talk about the foundation. It says in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, I like how the NIV says it, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. It's through hearing the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that we become included in the family of God. I love that. But he says, when you were included, you also, when you were included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. To be good theologians and therefore good spouses, then, we have to study God for who he really is. And that's what theology means. It's a study of God. We have to study God. And the Bible tells us who he is. It is in scripture that God is truly revealed, his character, his acts, his heart, and his beautiful, glorious, redemptive plan. And ultimately in the Bible, we encounter God as he has ultimately made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. And without it, we have a wrong view of God. I remember encountering a woman who had a wrong view of God when I still lived in Avon, New York, the Rochester area of Western New York, planted a church there in 2010. I remember I was sharing Christ with uh, a woman in our community. Uh, she was the mother of one of the athletes that was on uh, one of my children's sports teams at school. And we were just talking about the Lord. And she talked about how she had this previous experience with this church. Sounds like a very legalistic church. And she, she misbehaved in some way and said that they told her that she's going to hell. And that, you know, basically there's no redemption. And she just got this very harsh view of God. How do you correct that? Well, I took her to Ephesians 2, and I read it to her. I said, I want you to read this. And I said, I want you to put your eyes on it. And she did. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Her name was Carrie. I said, Carrie, what do you see there? How does that describe God? She said, great love. I'm just looking at the text of scripture. Gracious, 
he's kind. I said, yeah. And we found a few other things. I said, yeah. Does that sound like the God that was introduced to you? See, we needed the Bible to tell her who God really is and what he is really like, as God in his word gives us his self-revelation. He shows us who he is through his word. Jesus taught in John 14, 6 that he is the truth. Therefore, to know Jesus is to know the truth. Truth-based marriages are marriages centered on Christ and his word, the Bible. We obviously live in a day when the meaning of marriage, not to mention even what a man and a woman is, is up for grabs. Disconnected from any source of authority, marriage is left to follow culture no matter where culture goes. And it's just a a slippery slope of confusion and deceit and masses of people that are lost without a compass and story after story after story of failed relationships, failed marriages and failed families. Because if we don't get our definition from the authority, if we just get our definition from culture or from our feelings, we're not gonna see accurately. One pop idol, after partying hard one night, got married. And then two days later, she had the marriage annulled. She and her short-lived husband were sober when they got married, they weren't drunk. It was just a joke that went too far. To her, marriage seemed like this fun thing to do at a party for a few hours. Not too different from an afternoon visiting Starbucks. Just a spontaneous indulgence. No harm done. Or was there? To treat something so holy as so base is like playing marbles with diamonds. Dave Harvey says, this is why the Bible is so important. As God's word, it fills marriage with eternal and glorious significance. And it also speaks as an authority on what marriage is meant to be. So the Bible is both the standard for marriage and it gives us the key to joy in marriage. It's wonderful and liberating to realize that the durability and the quality of your marriage is not ultimately based on your strength or the strength of your commitment to marriage, but is based on something completely apart from your marriage. God's truth in the Bible, which is plain and clear on the pages of Scripture. Dave Harvey tells a story of an engineer that he knew that told him about a computer program with an operating manual that was so complicated, it required a personal explanation from the creator to understand it. Engineers from all over the world would fly to this guy's seminars and hear him interpret the manual. The assumption was that since he created the program and wrote the manual, that he was the authority and he should be listened to. And it's the same with God and the Bible. We need his explanation on marriage and family and parenting, and vision, and purpose, and to explain our own hearts, and explain our fallen world, to explain our sin, and our need of grace. So the foundation is the Bible, Scripture, God's Word. Number two, the number two button, the fountain of your marriage, and that is the gospel. Look at verse 13 in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, The gospel means good news. And the good news is that it's all about restoration of relationship. The gospel is all about restoration of and reconciliation of relationships. First with God, then with others. The gospel is about the reversal of death. And remember, the ultimate meaning of death is the coming apart of something. When something dies physically, it begins to decay and it begins to come apart from itself, doesn't it? 
when someone begins to die on the inside, their emotions, in a sense, begin to come apart and lose harmony, creating anxiety and dissonance in our hearts and minds, in our emotions. When a relationship dies, when a friendship dies, it comes apart. There's distance, isn't there? When a marriage or family dies, it begins to come apart. And it all began in Genesis. In Genesis, we see that God created man and woman to live in dependence on him and to live for the glory of God. Yet three chapters into the Bible, they turn away from him and from depending on him to self-dependence and sin enters the picture. And the tragic consequence is the death of their relationship with God. It comes apart. Then their family comes apart. Cain kills Abel. And the world we see comes apart. Now, many, many, many pages later, at the very end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see that God has completely restored that personal relationship with him that was lost by Adam and Eve, and he creates a new heavens and a new earth for his people. He reverses the curse. He reverses the fracture. He reverses the brokenness. He reverses death, and what was coming apart begins to come back together. So let's analyze this. There was a relationship broken by sin in the distant past. Then, because sin is removed, the relationship is healed and fully restored. Pretty clear pattern there for everything God fixes, isn't there? So what happens then with the 64 books between Genesis and Revelation? The gospel, that's what. God sends his son as the answer for the sin dilemma, not just to be a moral hero or teach us the right way to live our lives, but to take the judgment for sin promised in Genesis 3 so that we might live in a restored, healed relationship with God forever. Jesus becomes our substitute. And he opens the way. He tears the veil. And he opens the way to the Father so that we could be his children. He restores us. And the gospel is the heart of the Bible. And it's slippery. And if we lose our grip on it, we ultimately lose the essence of our faith. It's like our, our human heart. I can lose my hand or a few rando organs. <laughs> I guess I don't need my appendix. I guess we don't need our gallbladders. I don't, don't quote me on that. I'm not a doctor. But, you know, I could lose a few organs, apparently, and I'll be okay. But if I lose my heart, if I lose my heart, if you lose your heart, you die. And the gospel is the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart of the Bible. Absolutely everything in Scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. In the life death and resurrection of Christ. The gospel provides the final solution for our sin. And that will never change. We never move on from it. I want to quote Tim Keller and quote him for the first time as a brother uh, that we now know has gone to be with the Lord. Uh, one of the greatest gospel voices of our generation. And his voice will continue to speak through his teachings and writings. He had a big impact on my life. He said this, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A to Z of Christianity. You probably heard me say that before. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but it is the way we make all progress in the kingdom. The gospel is therefore central to all truth. It is the overarching reality that makes sense of all reality. 
We should never make the mistake of thinking that the gospel's only for evangelism, that it's only the door into the kingdom, and then you sort of move on from it. By the gospel, we understand that although saved, we remain sinners. And this is huge in marriage. Martin Luther called it simil justus et el peccator, which means simultaneously saint and sinner. That while we are completely saved and accepted because of the cross, that we're saints in God's eyes, we are simultaneously sinners in constant need of grace. And I'm going to quote Tim Keller again, something that I'm going to say this week and explain more next week. He said, here's the gospel that we say, I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe, and I'm more loved than I ever dared hope at the very same time. The gospel is the fountain of the grace of God. Through the gospel, we receive the power to resist sin. We receive the power to forgive sin. We accurately understand and continually apply the gospel. And that is the Christian life. It's continuing to accurately understand and continually apply the gospel. That's what it means to grow in the Christian life. This also means that the gospel is an endless fountain of God's grace in your marriage and your family. To become a good theologian and to be able to look forward to a lifelong, beautiful, thriving marriage, you have to have a clear understanding of it. Without it, it's impossible to see yourself or your marriage for what they really are, and it's impossible to give grace to your spouse where they're weak, where, they're, where they need forgiveness, where they need grace. The gospel, you might say, is the cipher of life. You know what a cipher is, right? It's the decoder of a message. You need it to understand the message. In the movie National Treasure, the Nicolas Cage character, uh, Ben Gates, uses a cipher that he found in the back of the Declaration of Independence to find this great treasure. He had to use that cipher to uh, discover other messages. The gospel is the cipher of life. It explains us. It explains marriage. It explains family. We see everything by it. It leads us to treasure. What has helped my wife and me through every difficulty is the gospel. What has helped us parent our children is the gospel. What has helped us forgive one another is the gospel. It's the cipher. It's the fountain. So we've talked about the the first two buttons, foundation and fountain. And the last button is the focus the focus of your marriage, and that is the glory of God. Back to, back to the text in Ephesians 1. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, here's our purpose, might be to the praise of his glory. Down at verse 12, he repeats the idea. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Marriage and family are not just invented by God. It's about God and for God, and it's actually a picture of God. Now, it can be a weird way to think about it, but marriage is actually not first about me and my spouse. Obviously, the man and the woman are essential, but they're also secondary. The most important person in my marriage is God. Marriage is for our blessing, but first, it's for God's glory. And this can be difficult to accept, but it's a vital truth for every Christian married couple. In my pastoral experience, I've seen the sad truth the sad fruit of failure to make marriage about God, marriage about the glory of God. A woman who wouldn't love her husband for who God made him to be and insisted that he change into what she was demanding and do it quickly or she'd leave. She did not see marriage as first about the glory of God, 
and that it wasn't about her own demands. Or a woman demanding her way or threatening to leave for days, and she would do this. She'd leave for days with no contact, no warning. If her husband wouldn't give in to her wants, if she was in an argument with her husband, she would sort of punish him for not seeing it her way or getting what she wanted by just leaving and not explaining uh, where she was going. She did not see her marriage first as about the glory of God, not about her comfort or her pleasure or her getting what she wanted every time. A man engaged in an emotional affair with another woman, seeking to take the relationship farther, all because he was dissatisfied at home and was in constant tension with his wife. He failed to see marriage as first about the glory of God, not about his personal satisfaction, and didn't lean in and work on his marriage with his wife. Instead, he sought to satisfy his appetites outside of his marriage. And most tragic of all, Christian families torn apart by divorce when one or both spouses simply decide that personal need is more important than what God has joined together. They did not see marriage as first being about God and his glory. In Ephesians 5, Paul spends much of the chapter talking to married people, having already outlined in prior chapters what Christ has done had done for them as individuals. He then moves the focus to marriage and family. He calls husbands and wives to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And the most notable thing about Paul's approach is that Christ is a reference point for all of our actions in marriage. Wives are to submit to their husbands, verse 22, as unto the Lord. Husbands are to love their wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands should nourish and cherish their wives. Verse 29, just as Christ loved the church. In each case, we see that while the action belongs to us, there's another and greater drama taking place through those actions. There's a story being told. He concludes with this, explaining that in even the most mundane daily rhythms of marriage, something glorious and glorious and mystifying is taking place. Paul writes, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Wow. Commentator George Knight gave this helpful thought. Unbeknownst to the people of Moses' day, Moses, he, quotes, he cites Moses because Moses was the, the giver of the law that instituted marriage as part of the, God's law in Israel. Knight writes, marriage was designed by God from the beginning to be a picture or a parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. Back when God was planning what marriage would be like, he planned it for this great purpose, that it would give a beautiful, earthly picture of the relationship that would someday come about between Christ and his people, Christ and his church. This was not known for many generations, and that's why Paul calls it a mystery. But now in the New Testament age, Paul reveals this mystery, and it's amazing. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Jesus like the hero rescuer of many great stories or great epics, goes to the cross to rescue his church. He saves her at the cost of his own life. Then when all seems lost and he's, he's gone, it seems like he's gone, he rises from the grave. He defeats death itself and promises one day to bring the church, also called his bride in the New Testament, eternally together with him. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. Marriage and family preach the gospel to the world. And that's why God uses our homes so powerfully in the mission of the church. 
We've said before, previous in this series, uh, Pastor Josh gave a message on hospitality. We've said before that our homes are greater evangelistic tools in the church building because there God puts on display his glory in our home and the way we love one another and the way we serve one another and the way we love others and serve our communities. And so let's embrace our marriages and our families and, and our purpose for them as the glory of God and use our lives, our marriages, our homes, our testimonies, our stories to be witnesses for Christ. Application, three quick things. Number one, accept the Bible as your authority. Our culture in many ways hates authority. We hate the idea that, that someone uh, has a, a claim over me and has a claim over truth. And yet Jesus said, I'm the truth. Accept the Bible as your authority. Number two, accept the gospel as your fountain. Keep going back to it, reminding yourself of your daily need for the grace of God to cover your sin and your daily helplessness without grace to become who you are called to be as a husband or a wife or as a father or a mother and go to that fountain of grace and give that grace to one another and your children. Number three, accept the glory of God as your mission. Your mission is not to build a, a great business, a family business, even if you have a family business. That can, be one, that can be one of the ways you glorify God, but your ultimate mission is not to build a family business or uh, this thing or that thing or to make these accomplishments or achievements or to make this much money. Your ultimate mission is the glory of God. That is what we are about. That is what matters. Embrace it. Teach it. Remind yourselves of it. Put it on, uh, put scriptures on the walls of your house to remind yourself of it. Because in the end, the Bible says, as the waters cover the sea, the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth. You know why? Because we're going to cover the earth. We're a part of that. We get to be part of God's mission in the world to bring glory to him. And it happens in our lives, our families, our marriages, and our homes. And listen, if you're, if you're in a marriage that is broken, there's grace, there's healing, there's forgiveness. Uh, maybe you were hurt by someone who mistreated you or was unfaithful to you. There's there's wholeness, there's healing in Christ. He brings us in, in our worst state, in our broken state, in our, in our state of pain and discouragement or failure. He brings us into himself and he heals us and he mends us and he shows us that this whole thing has always been about his glory in your life. Trust him, go to him, the king of grace. And above all, remember that he is absolutely 100% enough. Jesus is enough. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.